Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Industrial Environmental Management Lecture Series is brought to you by the Center for Industrial Ecology, with major funding from Nestle Waters and continued support from the Joel Omura Kurahara Fund. This is Anna Johnson, Director of the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, speaking about finding facts in fiction on biodegradability and packaging. Afternoon. I want to welcome you to the 2001 lecture series on business and the environment. I'm Reed Lipset, Associate Director of the Industrial Environmental Management Program and Chair of the lecture series here at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Through this lecture series, started in 1991, we seek to bring corporate executives and others uh, to the school to talk about topics of current interest and in many cases, cutting edge developments in environmental management policy and technology. We value the additional perspective that business people bring to our discussions at the Yale Environment School and the opportunity to have students and faculty meet them and for them to meet us. In the past, we've explored such topics as the emerging role of life cycle oriented management and product take back, the environmental impact of the service industries and green domestic markets in developing countries. The IEM program, the sponsor of the series, is a research and teaching unit here at Yale's Environment School. It's un under its auspices is a track within the master's program, this lecture series, and the editorship of the Journal of Industrial Ecology. Be sure to grab some brochures on your way out. The lecture series is supported by a modest endowment, the Joel Amara Kurahara Fund. Joel was a graduate of the Environment School and the School of Management in 1991. Uh, he went to work for Conrail and was very active in the Global Environmental Management Initiative. He was a very bright, very committed, and very energetic believer in the importance of greening corporate practice. When he died 17 years ago, Conrail, his colleagues, family, and friends established a memorial to honor him. His parents asked that the funds be, uh, that the funds be used uh, for this lecture series. Excuse me for one minute. So, uh, Um, this lecture series is also being sponsored this year by Nestle Waters, a uh, division of the global um, firm uh, Nestle SA. Uh, Nestle Waters is interested in um, fostering a discussion around extended producer responsibility, the notion that producers uh, take responsibility for products and packaging when they hit the waste stream. Um, as part of that effort, they funded this lecture series to, uh, to get the discussion and de uh, debate going. Keep America Beautiful, a U.S. nonprofit organization promoting litter and waste reduction, and the Resource Recovery Forum, a U.K.-based international nonprofit network uh, interested in sustainable waste management, are also helping in publicizing the lecture series on EPR. Our talk, uh, the talk today, in our series is by Ann Johnson, Program Director of the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, an industry working group of over 200 companies from across the, the packaging supply chain. Ms. Johnson's presentation will examine biodegradability claims in packaging and tease out where environmental benefits may lie. Biodegradability is a notion that many of us find intuitively compelling as a solution to many waste issues. 
it but it raises important and complicated questions about materials choice and waste management for packaging and other products. Ms. Johnson joined Green Blue, a nonprofit institute focused on guiding business and industry towards sustainable design and production in 2005. Trained as an engineer and scientist with a background in management and sustainability consulting, she has more than 15 years experience in materials, industrial processes, environmental management, and systems evaluation of products and packages. Since coming to Green Blue, she's directed the Sustainable Packaging Coalition. She led the effort to develop a consensus-based definition of sustainable packaging for the coalition. She's been involved in a wide variety of projects, including environmental technical briefs on packaging materials and a comparative package design software application called Compass. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Dartmouth College, a Master of Science from the University of Arizona, and a Master of Engineering degree in Civil Engineering from the University of Virginia. And I just want to take a second to note that she has an interesting connection to this school. For those of you that know the, the, the scientific history of the school, you'll know that in some ways um, the school made its, its first big mark in the, in the realm of research with a, pro a project called Hubbard Brook that did a lot to develop the notion of ecosystem ecology. Her father worked very closely with Jean Likens and Herb Borman, who were seminal figures in that effort, and she tells me that her father is actually buried there. So it's a, it's a very intimate connection. Um, other speakers in this lecture series will address the relationship between materials choice, packaging design, and waste infrastructure, uh, the findings from the innumerable life cycle assessments that have been done on packaging, the history of extended producer responsibility in North America, and the history of US federal policy towards packaging in general. Many of the lectures in the series will take the form of webinars. If you'd like to be notified of the various lectures by email, be sure to sign up at the list just outside the lecture hall. The lecture by Ms. Johnson is being videotaped and may be available on the website of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Thus, it is with considerable pleasure and anticipation that I turn the podium over to Ms. Johnson, who will tell us about biodegradability and packaging, finding facts in fiction. Thanks very much, Reed. Um, and thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. I have to comment that since I was in graduate school, classrooms have really improved a lot. This is really a lovely facility. Um, anyhow, um, as Reed said, uh, I work for a nonprofit called Green Blue. Uh, we're in Charlottesville, Virginia. We were founded by Bill McDonough and Michael Browngard in 2003. Um, they've since left our board, and since that time, Green Blue has really I've expanded its sort of philosophical uh, approach to industrial ecology to embrace a much broader, um, I think, perspective than, than the sort of cradle-to-cradle -cradle philosophy that they're sometimes associated with. And I came to Green Blue specifically um, because I was really interested in bridging the gap between science and business. Um, I had done quite a bit of work in sustainability consulting um, while I was at um, MBDC, and I could tell there was just a big disconnect between the language of science and the communication of environmental issues to the business community and how they would um, value and or interpret those issues. So we've got a couple of projects um, at Green Blue. We have Clean Ingredients, which is a, sort of a green chemistry focused project on industrial cleaning products. 
Um, a year ago, we acquired a nonprofit called Metaphor um, that works on forestry issues. Um, they do a lot of work in the forest products as well as the uh, printed paper industry. And then the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, which is the project that I manage. So to get to the SPC, um, it was founded in 2004 by seven um, companies who we sort of went out with, a, with an idea. Is there interest in exploring what the idea of sustainability means in the context of packaging? And we had a, a, a meeting with about 30 companies, and seven of them stepped up and said, yeah, this is really interesting. This is a very pertinent business issue for us. Um, it's on all of our corporate agendas, and we feel very deeply that we need to figure out what can we do to improve packaging. We think design is a really important leverage point for doing that. So that was really the inspiration for getting the group together. And um, since then, we've grown to over 220 member companies from across the value chain. So we have many, many commodity raw material suppliers. Um, we have a lot of uh, uh, what we call packaging converters, people who take materials, convert them into packaging formats. We have a significant um, number of brand owners or retailers who are the folks who typically specify packaging. Um, but we also have a lot of designers, um, marketing people, recyclers, and technology companies in our membership. But it's a very unique organization in that we do have this whole value chain of packaging represented. Um, our real mission has been to put out a vision of what sustainability for packaging means, and then build the tools, the resources, the knowledge base for companies to then go act on that vision. So that's what we've been doing for the last six years. So I wanted to start with this picture to just try to put the role of biodegradation in sort of context of when we think about um, what we do to materials to make them valuable for packaging. So if we look at sort of virgin materials where we're extracting materials either from the biosphere or um, we're taking raw materials, we're investing money, effort, um, environmental impact in making them more valuable as we go up the value chain. And that's why we want to try to keep things up here as much as we can. Um, so we, we reuse, we recycle, um, we can chemically recycle. When we think about composting, that's a, that's a strategy that's coming up for packaging. There's a lot of interest in that. We have a, a pretty significant loss of value in materials when we compost. Um, so it's maybe not always our highest, best use of materials necessarily, but it's a really important waste management strategy that currently we don't really have much infrastructure for. So I just sort of put this up there for some context of where maybe composting is when we think about other recovery. Um, scenarios. So I wanted to give you some background of what's driving interest in, in biodegradable packaging. Why is it such a hot topic? Um, there is a huge amount of misunderstanding around this idea in the marketplace, and perhaps the most confused are consumers. Um, so I wanted to show you, this is sort of uh, a chart that we use a lot. We call it our flayed donut. And it just shows, you know, again, how resources come into the value chain, how they're converted, um, and where they go. And this is the relationship I'm going to talk to you about because retailers are a very, very important link between 
how we make materials and how they're communicated to consumers. They live on this edge between those two people. Retailers seldom have packaging departments. Even though they may have big private label portions of their companies, they rarely employ the engineers and designers for their packaging. They contract it out. On the other hand, um, brand owners, your Unilevers, your P&Gs, um, your Cokes and your Pepsis, they often have very sophisticated packaging divisions as well as life cycle assessment um, folks. These people spec packaging and they communicate to consumers about packaging, but they're not necessarily the most informed audience for that conversation. So where materials are made is way back here. There's a lot of stuff that happens along here. Um, additive suppliers for polymers lie somewhere out here. They, you know, they're, they're coming into your commodity producers. So I just want you to have a sense of what the dynamic of the marketplace is for packaging. So this is a picture that I'm sure all of you have deeply ingrained in your mind as people familiar with industrial ecology. Um, but I think there's a very intrinsic um, connection to this for a lot of people. When you communicate to consumers about using nature as a model for materials, it's very intuitive. It's, um, I have a third grader who's now studying the, you know, the life cycle of a butterfly and, oops, wrong way. And she really gets this. Little kids get this. When we're in kindergarten, we start teaching this. And as we get to be older, what we understand is the way this works is we have these complex you know, processes in, in decomposition and biodegradation that allows this to occur. We think of this as a very beneficent type of system. We live in this system. It's our biosphere. We use it as an analogy to talk about how we can make um, our industrial practice more sustainable. But that has some interesting con consequences when we talk about consumers. So when we think about the trends that are influencing packaging, um, despite a lot of effort to improve packaging over the years, and we, we can sort of track this in, in um, developed economies, we can see that the amount of packaging waste produced per capita actually delinks at a certain level. Um, that they are in fact doing a pretty good job at designing packaging to be more resource efficient, to be lighter. Um, because typically we see packaging being directly associated with economic growth. But despite those efforts, in any economy on the planet, consumers associate packaging with waste. And they, they also associate it with environmental impact. So there's a subtext underneath there, which we know that most products probably have far more environmental impact than the package itself. But to consumers, that's very um, opaque. To them, they drink the water. They're left with this in their hand. They got to figure out what to do with it. It's waste. So, Packaging is on the agenda of pretty much any big branded company. Um, and what you see is that a lot of these companies are taking positions, creating targets around renewable materials. Um, I think in some cases these targets have been made without perhaps a lot of study or thinking about what the consequence of that is. But you do have a general sort of corporate trend towards um, a position, a positive position around renewable materials. At the same time, there's a lot of pressure to be more resource efficient. The Walmart score, packaging scorecard has been a, a really significant driver 
um, in this marketplace. And their measure um, for packaging has been weight-based. So the lighter your package, the better it's going to score. The result of that, but also I think in your general types of source reduction strategies, is you're moving to lighter materials. What are lighter materials? They're polymers. What are those polymer types? They're films. So we're moving from heavier, um, rigid types of formats of packaging into flexible packaging. So anybody goes to the granola aisle, it used to come in a box, you know, a bag in a box, and now it comes in a multi-laminate Ziploc bag. That's a trend that's happening across um, consumer products. And you see that in food, you see it in personal care, um, we see it pretty much everywhere. The side effect of that is these materials are not typically recyclable. So you have this dichotomy in companies, packaging is seen as waste, the resource-sufficient solution that you're driving towards is a non-recyclable type of material. Um, therefore, they're looking for solutions to that, and biodegradable materials seems like a solution to that problem. So what do consumers think about biodegradability? Um, in 2006, the American Chemistry Council did an interesting survey looking at, looking at um, consumer additives, uh, sorry, consumer attitudes around um, biodegradable. And I found this fascinating. Um, and this gets back to my earlier comment about, I think, the, the very intrinsic um, connection to nature as a model for materials. So consumers think that biodegradable means that um, the material can break down on its own, um, that it happens pretty quickly in a year or less, and that it disappears. So clearly thermodynamics is not a strong part of most consumers' mindset. Um, but they also have kind of a perverse connection to this in terms of their personal behavior. So um, Keep America Beautiful, thankfully, did another, uh, another study in 2008 to follow their previous study, which occurred in 1969. Um, so they waited a while. Um, and what they found is that the thing we litter most are cigarettes. In any environment, cigarette butts are what you find by far and away, which I found amazing. Um, but they found that biodegradability is actually a characteristic that leads to more littering behavior. If people think something is biodegradable, like an apple or whatever, you can toss it. Um, so that was an interesting fact to me. Um, but you can also see, and th their study was only terrestrial litter, um, that packaging is a big part of what we find in litter now. They had a very interesting, you know, to show the change in the, the types of materials you find in litter, and it used to be glass and cans, um, and now it has, and, and paper, now you see very little, almost no glass, very few cans, and you see a lot of people on the side of the road, if there are cans, picking them up, but you see plastic and films um, and fast food. Um, wrappers. So we're just going to quickly go over the types of materials we're talking about when, when uh, we talk about biodegradable packaging. And there are some interesting sort of ironies in this. Um, so here are our obvious ones that we think about. You know, we have our corrugated, our box board, our molded pulp, all tree-based fibers, um, all of which are biodegradable, but I'm not certain I've ever actually seen a biodegradable claim on these materials for the most part. Usually it's some sort of recyclable um, label. We can make them non-biodegradable by coating them with polymers. 
Um, we have other bio, oops, went too far. Um, we have other bio-based packaging materials um, that we're seeing more frequently, which are non-traditional fibers. So you'll see them in a lot of molded um, formats. They're, they can be bagasse, palm fiber, straw, canaf, hemp. Um, and then we see extruded or foamed starches. Um, and it could be either potato or, or corn starches. Again, these are all very readily um, biodegradable types of materials, and we would also probably consider these home compostable in many situations. But we have a new class of biodegradable materials that are more complex. Consumers don't know much about them, and in some cases I don't think businesses know much about them either. Um, so we saw in the 1990s in particular the introduction of a lot of um, starch-based polymers. And I have a couple of them. Um, these are actually trade names. These are very readily biodegradable um, polymers. In the last decade, we've seen the introduction of some biopolymers based on corn and PHA, um, which uh, can actually come from a couple of different sources. Right now, the, the commercial approach has been through fermentation. But they are compostable um, bio-based polymers. There is, this is the commercially the most prominent one. You see it in some rigid packaging, you see it in some films, and you see it in coatings. PHA is just on the, sort of the edge of being commercialized. Um, and I think, um, I think it's ADM and Metabolics are, we're working on a joint venture with that. I'm not certain where that stands. And then you have traditional cellulosic, um, types of materials that are out there that have been out there for a long time, but we're actually seeing some sort of interesting innovation around the, there. The class that I think is very complicated is this fossil fuel-based class of biodegradable polymers. And I should caveat that by saying degradable polymers are not actually biodegradable. Um, they physically degrade. And we saw those, I think, in the 80s and early 90s. We had a lot of degradable trash bags and other um, additivated polymers. And we realized that that ended up being a real problem, that because they don't go away, you just go from visible litter to microscopic litter. However, these are actually regulated. All those um, beverage six-pack holders that are plastic have to be degradable polymers. And that's for um, that was based on wildlife protection in aquatic environments. But the important thing to take away is they're not actually biodegradable. So we have two classes of polymers, oxobiodegradable and omnidegradable, um, where we see a lot, of, um, a lot of marketing push towards those, a lot of interest on the part of business, um, and I think a lot of confusion on the part of consumers. I, I put this slide up there because we also have bio-based, but not biodegradable or compostable um, polymers now. So we have traditional polymers that are being made uh, with fossil fuel, um, I'm sorry, with bio-based feedstocks. And we have both polyethylenes and polyethylene terephthalate now. Um, and the, the big there's been a lot of push around this Coke plant bottle, which is 30% plant-based. So they're using sugarcane, um, making ethanol, 
and then they're making some of the feedstocks for the PET out of it. Now, the problem is, some people see this and say, well, why, if it's bio-based, why isn't it biodegradable? So it's interesting because when we first started making polymers, they were bio-based. We used to make polymers out of sugar cane. Um, so it's important that these are out there, but they shouldn't be confused with bio-based polymers that are also biodegradable. So just to go into some of the, um, a quick, you know, breakdown on, on how these technologies actually work. Um, oxos are, are a very um, diverse class of polymer additives. They're usually um, compounded into a material at about one to three percent. And uh, it's almost, they're almost all, they're always put in fossil fuel-based polymers, and they tend to be metal sterates. Traditionally, they had been cobalt-based. Um, but increasingly, as concerns over cobalt went up, um, the industry has innovated around other types of metals, and manganese, um, magnesium, iron, and zinc are, are common ones that you see now. So they work in two ways. Um, through the action of heat or light, they oxidize some of the polymer bonds. So they make the polymer chains shorter, and therefore, theoretically more accessible to microbes. So the second step then is that once that scission happens, those polymer chains then can become food for microbes. However, oxo biodegradable polymers do not meet any compostability standards to date. So this becomes this very sort of complex interaction between you know, a, a material, and then how do we judge the characteristic of its biodegradability? Um, they have been on the market for some time in Europe. They were quite prevalent a decade ago. Um, and there's been a, a, there were quite a few of these additive pr producers. I think they're often marketed as a solution to litter. But we've had problems with some misleading claims around them about that they biodegrade in landfills. However, there's not a lot of heat or light in landfills necessarily. So um, obviously, that takes some more study. I got an email about six months ago that goes, Anne, what the hell is an omnidegradable? I wrote back and I said, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know very much about them, but this is what I do know. Um, it is an organic additive added to fossil fuel-based polymers. Um, it can be based on EVA or PVOH, so these are um, um, organic-based materials. I looked up an MSDS for one of these additives yesterday, and it said miscellane miscellaneous organoleptic chemicals, so I'm actually not certain what that means. And that's part of the problem is that we don't really know what the chemistry of these materials, of these additives are, and when you ask, you typically don't get the information. So um, I, I think there's a lot of, there's not a lot of clarity on really what is the chemistry of these additives. Um, however, we're seeing them used in a lot of common polymers that we use in packaging, namely polyethylene and PET. And that gets people in the recycling side of packaging concerned. Um, and there was concern about that in terms of oxos, too, because you don't want um, materials in your recycling stream to start breaking down on you. 
So as far as I know, none of the omni-degradable um, materials meet compostability standards to date. Um, and I'm going to go over this a little later, but they were also um, one, one um, material from a producer was recently the subject of a, of a national advertising um, review ruling uh, about making a misleading claim around biodegrading in a landfill in nine to six months. I'm sorry, I did that wrong. It should be six to nine months. So a couple of quick definitions. Um, this is from the, um, a European standard called EN 13.432. It is a compostability standard um, at, that's part of, um, that's used within the CEN standards under the Packaging Waste Directive in Europe. It's a very clear standard. Um, it's, I like it because I think it's very thorough, it's very clear. And they have this nice statement about ultimate biodegradability. All of you know what biodegradability is, I'm sure, but it's my, they're very clear to point out that ultimate biodegradability has a context in aerobic environments and it has a context in anaerobic environments. And that's very pertinent for packaging. So to go through the standard just in a very high level, it says a compostable packaging material has to meet a couple of tests. It needs to meet a test around biodegradability, around disintegration, compost, compost quality, and recognizability. So the biodegradability, they actually have a, a test for both aerobic and anaerobic. But what they're saying is in a composting system, an aerobic composting system, you should be able to prove that 90% of that material um, degrades within six months. So they've given it a percentage of degradation. We measure it through evolution of CO2 and a time frame, which is very, very important. Disintegration means that even if you see a lot of CO2, I got to look at it and those bits have to be small. I can't have big chunks of polymer left in my compost pile. Even if you say there, you know, the CO2 should prove that it's gone. Quality means that if you're using inks or additives or other things that might potentially contaminate that compost and compromise the viability of stuff that would grow in it, that's not going to work. Um, and recognizability um, is a very interesting aspect, which is the material needs to be labeled, clearly labeled as compostable. So that's kind of a recognition that consumers and other people need to be able to tell this is a compostable material. These are some relevant standards in the US. We use ASTM 6400 for compostable plastics and ASTM 6868 for um, biodegradable paper products that have a plastic coating. Um, and again, the thing I want to note in here is these are limited to municipal and industrial aerobic composting facilities. So this is not your backyard heap. This is a managed system that has temperature um, conditions that you would not find in a home compost situation, that's a very important caveat because um, until I got in this business, I actually didn't know that I sort of thought all composting systems were the same, but this is very clearly an engineered system. We turn the piles, um, so on and so forth. So this is probably an example of compostable packaging that you might all be familiar with this year. Um, so Frito-Lay spent a lot of money 
um, investing in the research and development to create a compostable film for their chip bag. Chip bags sit on a shelf for no more than 60 days, um, at which point they're pulled. And if they haven't been sold, there's obviously potato chips in them. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just compile, you know, compost the whole, the whole bit. Um, so you can either put a 60-day chip in a thousand-year bag, or you could put a 60-day chip in a compostable bag. Um, so I think they went into this knowing that basically there is not a lot of municipal collection of compostable materials. You have some communities, San Francisco among them, who collect compostable materials, but most communities don't, and I live in Central Virginia, and it's definitely we don't. Um, so there's little collection, there's very little composting infrastructure. Most of what we have for composting infrastructure is for green waste. So it's for yard trimmings and grass clippings, and those guys don't want packaging. Um, the fate of compostable materials in landfills is no different. The conditions in landfills are such that this bag is likely not going to degrade. Um, so you, you ask, why would a company do it? And they're doing it because it's an investment for the future. And it's um, really looking at how anticipating a future infrastructure, how might we fit into that? Because they're not really in the business of selling packaging, they're in the business of selling food. Um, and we'll look at how important food waste is in a second. So I'm going to shift gears now to sort of the realm of claims and how we talk about biodegradability to um, consumers. So I threw the whole thing in here from the Green Guide. So the Federal Trade Commission has a, has a guidance document called the Green Guides for companies who are going to communicate about their products to businesses and consumers. And it says that you, the way they divide it up is you can make um, uh, an unqualified claim, and if you're going to make an unqualified claim about biodegradability, you have to be able to somehow prove that it de decomposes into elements found in nature within a reasonably short period of time after customary disposal. Well, reasonably short time is a very lawyerly way, right? That leaves a huge door open what is reasonably short. They have subsequently, after three years um, of review, they have refined that short period of time um, at least for landfills, to be one year. If you're going to make a qualified claim, which is the other type of claim you can make, um, you have to talk about the ability to degrade in the environment where it's customarily disposed and the rate and extent of degradation. So those are the sort of tests that companies have to, um, have to go after to make a, a valid claim. However, you'll notice, I mean, it doesn't specifically reference any particular specification or test method. So just to show some examples of what this looks like on packaging, um, this is a compostable um, bag made out of a, a, a cornstarch-based polymer. It has, I mean, they've left no, nothing undone here. They have the BPI compostable label. They have the DINCERTCO compostable labor, label. Um, so this is US. This is, um, I think this is German. And then this is a Belgian, I think Vincote is a Belgian compostability. So that is labeled with every compostability label I'm aware of. Um, 
So, and then they have this green stripe here. The green cart means it goes in your composting cart. That is pretty clearly meets the recognizability aspect of that um, EN standard. This is um, something that I got in the mail. And um, they're telling me that this bag is LDPE. They're saying that it biodegrades in, um, maybe that's where I got it from. Does that say nine to 60 months? Okay, so it's nine months. So nine, nine months to five years in the presence of microorganisms. It's also recyclable. I mean, this is great stuff. This does everything for me right here. Um, so that's an example of a, of a qualified claim right there. So this is where it gets complex, is that um, all of you know that the problem with biodegradation is that the conditions really matter. What's the temperature? What's the moisture? What's the oxygen conditions? And are there any critters there who are actually find this stuff food? So any one of those things can change the rate um, and the thoroughness of biodegradation. All right, so let's get into the fiction part of my um, presentation here. So this is where I think you see the tension between the desire to market to that intrinsic um, belief that biodegradability is a beneficial characteristic. Um, and I think the science behind the environmental benefit. So this is a product, um, and I just want to be clear, these are some slides um, that I used from a, a friend of mine, I'm sorry, Steve Mojo. He's the executive director of the Biodegradable Products Institute. Um, this is a, a PET bottle that we would normally recycle, but it has an omnidegradable additive in it. So they're also saying it's biodegradable. Um, and I think they say up here, um, it's not an OXO, it's not PLA, um, you can't see it, but it's back here. Um, it, it, it's a plastic container that biodegrades in anaerobic or aerobic environments. So it's got you covered no matter what. And on their website, they showed their test data to substantiate their claim. Um, and I actually really like this word here, apparently. Um, so they did a 15-day test, which I think, um, I'm trying to remember, I, I, I'm not an, entirely certain. It's an anaerobic test that they did um, because they wanted to prove that it biodegraded degrades in a landfill. And I'm trying to remember the number of days that you have to, to test that for, I'm not quite certain. But so they looked at their line and they, they just extrapolated it out. Um, so that was their control, that would be cellulose, and then that's theirs. Well, the Biodegradable Products Institute also ran a test using the same test method, and the test method is ASTM D5511. This is a test method um, for biodegradation in the presence of um, a highly reactive environment, which in this case is sewage sludge probably not very indicative of the environment that one finds in a landfill. And very interestingly, um, so here's the control, here's polyethylene that does nothing. Um, there's their cellulose line, the blue line, um, right there. 
and then this was their test line. And here's 60 days, and I think this is 30 days. So they ran the test twice as long. And um, that's a pretty, pretty flat rate. So the lesson here is that when the National um, Advertising Division reviewed this, because somebody took it to them as a mediator and said, we believe this is a misleading claim, this was the ruling on December 12th or 14th of last year that this is a, a body that outside of going to court will make um, rulings on in, um, consumer claims. So they, they cite um, the FTC here, and I think you can read that for yourself. They're saying that ASTM D5511 just doesn't represent what we find in a landfill. Um, it's very inappropriate to apply it and base a claim on it. So um, this is a problem, and we would recommend you not make this type of claim. So the big thing is anaerobic digesters, um, you know, that was the purpose of 5511. It was to, it was to model a, an anaerobic digester, not a landfill. So this is just a summary of some NAD cases that have come up around oxobiodegradables and omnidegradables. And you can see that over the last several years, there have been a lot of these claims um, that have been found problematic. And the claims are either um, around that there are oxobiodegradable, biodegradable, or biodegradable in landfills. So um, there's been a, a pattern here that I think has led to a lot of confusion um, in the marketplace and has made it difficult for legitimate producers of biodegradable materials to be able to communicate about the attributes of their, of their materials. So it leads you to this question, so if biodegradation even happens, what is the environmental benefit? So I just want to quickly show you, this is what we throw away every year. This is the sort of characterization of U.S. municipal solid waste. Over 60% of it is organic materials. Um, so we have yard trimmings, we have food scraps, we have paper and paperboard, we have wood. There's a lot of organic stuff that we throw into a landfill. The way we manage it is we landfill more than half of it. So to the FTC's point of the likely disposal environment, you're likely to end up in a landfill. And, um, and especially if you're not a recyclable material. This composted piece of our management is almost all green waste. It's all grass clippings, leaves, and things like that. So, um, Reed, you know landfills far better than I do, but per EPA regulation, um, landfills after, what, 1970 or something were really engineered to be dry tombs. They're engineered to not let the water out the bottom, and once you cap them, it, they're engineered to not let the water in the top. Um, we're seeing a trend towards bioreactors, but there are very, very few of them. In bioreactors, you recirculate the, the leachate to encourage um, degradation. But when you cut through a landfill and look at them, they're very heterogeneous. I mean, we throw all our stuff in a plastic bag. The plastic bag gets thrown on a hole. We put other stuff around it. We compact it. We put dirt on it. The, the, it's a very inconsistent environment. Um, and because of that, 
the, the conditions to the exposure to water, to oxygen, to microbes is really, really variable. Um, it's, food is pre-colonized with microbes. It can help with degradation. Packaging is not. And in fact, we know that a lot of packaging is food specification. You don't want microbes on your, on your packaging. So um, packaging actually often doesn't have some of the conditions that would, would lead to degradation. So this is out of the EPA's um, greenhouse gas emission inventory. And in 1990, landfills were the largest anthropogenic source of greenhouse gases in the United States. So that leads you to think, well, why would I want biodegradation to occur, whether it occurred aerobically in a landfill, but we also know it's an oxygen-deprived system, so I'm likely to evolve methane which is going to be 25 times more greenhouse gas effective than CO2. We look um, more recently, I'm off the chart here, and it's gone down a little bit, but now landfills are the second most significant source of anthropogenic um, greenhouse gas emissions. So there is, there is a conflict between, I think, this interest in biodegradable packaging and the reality of what the likely disposal disposal environment is and um, the, you know, the context of what's going to happen with a package in a landfill. So I'm not going to belabor this slide, um, but there's this interesting fact that things with a lot of lignin in them do not decompose readily in anaerobic environments. So things like leaves, wood, um, don't really um, decompose well under landfill conditions that are oxygen limited. And this is sort of a summary of how EPA um, sort of characterizes that. And what you see is that food actually decomposes relatively rapidly in landfills. And things like newspaper um, or leaves don't. So not very intuitive. I mean, you think of those as organic materials, wow, we would think they would go away. But because of lignin, they actually don't. So this is what the mix of wastes in landfills look like over the last 20 years. And you can see we've made some concerted effort to drop, you know, to, to divert organic waste from landfills. Um, and this is what goes to landfills. So before I showed you what we generate, this is now what goes to landfills. But what's interesting is looking at how that composition within what goes to landfill and is organic has changed. And um, you can see that, oh, darn it, wrong one. Um, we've actually been diverting a fair amount of paper and paperboard. And in fact, corrugated is one of the most highly recycled materials we have. Um, but what we see is that food has actually gone up in that 20-year period. Reed and I were talking about this this morning. I think it's because we all go out to eat all the time. I don't know. No scientific basis for that. We also know that we've been doing a pretty good job at diverting green waste from landfills. But despite those efforts, the amount of methane generated has actually gone up um, in, in um, CO2 equivalents, but what has controlled it overall 
is that our management strategies have dramatically changed over that 20 years. So we slowly but surely are doing more waste energy. Um, we are flaring a ton, so that means we have managed landfills, we're piping and we're flaring them. Um, this is soil oxidation, um, and then this is what we're actually emitting. So you can see that, that what we're, we're actually emitting has gone down a bit, but since there's been so much growth in the overall emissions, um, the management strategies have actually um, helped not make that as big a change as it could have been. So just as a summary, I think that, you know, when we look at the characteristic of biodegradability in the context of packaging, it's a very complex story. Um, I think there is this in, just intrinsic belief by consumers that biodegradation is a benefit because it's natural, it's benign, um, therefore it must be good for the environment, right? But we're just lacking that broader sort of systemic context of where is it going and what happens to it when it gets there. Um, so without that context, you can't really assess whether you know, biodegradation is a, is a benefit or not. Um, since most packaging still goes to landfills, clearly it's a problem. We've got to look at it in that context. Um, so when I spoke to the FTC, um, at, they had a hearing two years ago or three years ago for the revision of the green guides. I mean, one of my recommendations is that biodegradable should be stricken as um, a consumer claim because there's just too much complexity underneath it for consumers to understand it in the context of packaging. So that's it for me. APC Recycling and I recycle, uh, my company recycles millions of pounds per month of plastic. And do you think that the uh, manufacturers and the brand producers are pushing biodegradable as a claim for market share? Because it's, it appeals to the soccer moms. They, they look at it and say, hey, it's great. And sorry, my second part of the question would be, what happens when degradable plastic mixes in with my non-degradable plastic and I sell it to a plastic lumber manufacturer? and it gets exposed to oxygen and sunlight and the decks start falling in that they make yeah. Trex lumber out of. Right. Well, to your second question, they're going to be bummed, right? I mean, sure. there's just no doubt. <laughs> um, the first question is, I, th I think that I would like to be generous and say that brand owners are not doing that for market share. I would certainly say that I think your large brand owners with deep pockets that have big legal departments are definitely not doing that. I think you probably have niche products where they may be doing that, thinking it's something that's very consistent with their product line, but they don't really have the in-house expertise to know otherwise. Because I think in many cases, businesses are simply as um, misinformed as consumers on some of this complexity. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with APR's position on OXOs, that they present a huge concern to the recycling community because when do you know that oxidation has started and where is it in its lifespan when you get it as a recycler? So I think it's a, it's a serious problem. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's the trend in polymers as we just keep diversifying, making more combinations and permutations of 
I mean, it's a thing we love about polymers, and it's a thing that makes them so difficult. Day pharmacy, but you know, these like the Sunchips bag, is that used for uh, feedstock? What do you mean by feedstock? The bag itself, or the? Um, I'm saying that the strategy is a feedstock substitution. So that bag used to be made out of um, oriented polypropylene. So that's made from you know fossil fuels. So they are replacing it with a feedstock that's now made from a biogenic source of carbon, so from corn. And obviously, as a Frito-Lay company, they sell a lot of corn. So you know, there is some consistency with, with that strategy with their, their product. So the benefit, the, the, the carbon benefit, is in the feedstock substitution for non-renewable fossil fuel-based material for a biogenic current carbon you know, feedstock. Hi, my name is Justin Lindenmayer. I'm at the School of Management. Um, given the lack of infrastructure for composting, do you think that the companies that are making biodegradable, even true biodegradable plastics, are doing more harm than good, given that the vast majority is not being composted? No, because I think those materials, ha their fate in a landfill is no different. They don't, if they end up in a landfill, they're, I don't think they're going to be any more harmful to the environment. But I think the question comes down to, how do you ever do anything different than what we're doing now? If we don't have anything that leads us to something different, we're just stuck. You know, we're just going to keep throwing stuff in a hole in the ground. And you, the opportunity for composting is not packaging. You saw that in the, the mix of what goes to landfill. It's food. And food is the stuff that actually biodegrades in a landfill. It's the stuff we got to get out of landfill. So, Packaging could be a medium for getting the food out of the landfill, ultimately. So I think that we have to make sure that we look at what is the priority. Um, and that, that we know that a lot of packaging that's going to landfills is not degrading because it has high lignin. We know stuff that is compostable, even because of the conditions <coughs> of the landfill, is not likely to biodegrade. So it's probably nets out, you know, not, not any worse for the wear. But what it does is it opens the door to a new end-of-life scenario where we could actually do something that would be more beneficial than a landfill, which is to compost it. And it would be a lot more beneficial if we could, if that facilitated food. If all of us eating in restaurants is wasting so much food and throwing it you know, in landfills, um, there's a big opportunity to, to change the equation with respect to carbon. Hi, Alicia Eisenstein with the School of Management and the School of Forestry. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the missing link in all of this is more industrial composting facilities, more municipal industrial composters. Is there, has there been any effort on the part of the packaging industry to advocate, um, to partner with municipalities, to partner with the types of companies that 
construct those types of facilities right. or with the government? There, there is. There was just a big U.S. Composting Council meeting a week or two ago that I didn't go to, but um, this is a red-hot topic in the industry. I think there's a lot of interest. Um, I would say maybe not so much, particularly from the material producers, are very, obviously, if you're making a compostable material, you want to make sure that there is an infrastructure at the other end to receive it. But when you think about it, when we introduced this bottle, was there any expectation that there would be infrastructure for it? No. The, you know, the producers were not held responsible for ensuring that this thing had a positive you know, life cycle through its whole life. It came after the fact. The equation has definitely changed now. You put a material out in the market, you better have a good end of life solution. So there's been a lot of effort. In fact, I think NatureWorks, the one site that we have that actually tells you where composting facilities are in the US, I think NatureWorks compiled that database originally. And I think BioCycle may maintain that. But there are issues. Composting requires permitting. Most composters are independent operators like recyclers. Um, and um, municipalities seldom compost. In some cases, they do. But municipalities don't have any money. I mean, they don't have any money to support recycling programs. They're not going to have any money to start a composting. So this is going to be a business you know, that, that has to start. Um, and what we see already is that um, there is a mismatch between some of the compostability standards and the operating conditions of what we see in composting facilities. So to make money in composting, my turn rate might be 45 days or 60 days, not 180 days, which is the time frame in many standards. So we need to close the gap between making sure that we have standards that accurately reflect um, the way people operate, as well as to figure out, you know, what are going to be the end markets for that compost? And is permitting going to be a barrier or, you know, something that helps support it? But, you know, some of these facilities, you know, you can have odor problems and pest problems, and especially if you have food, that's a, that's a particular challenge. But it's one that certainly, that shouldn't slow us down. I mean, if we can crash land something on Mars, we should be able to figure out food composting. Hi, towards the beginning of your talk, you mentioned that there's a movement towards minimizing packaging, which mm -hmm. led into thinner materials and introduction of biodegradable plastics. But there's also new products out there, like the sugar I buy, for instance, now came out in a resealable bag that's recyclable. And I didn't know if you can speak to this movement as opposed to biodegradable products. And also, the TerraCycle program, I didn't know if you knew anything about that. Yeah. Well, we can recycle that sugar bag, but it's a, it's a flexible film, and a lot, of, a lot of communities don't accept it. So it's not collected at very high rates at all. Um, and that's the same way, you know, LDPE carrier bags are very recyclable, um, and most retail stores will have a bin where you can put it in there. Those are commonly feedstocks for plastic lumber or for trucks, and they like that. It can be recycled into that. Um, the reality is those types of packages are rarely collected, and they're not recycled at a very, very high rate. Um, I think the plastics industry is working very, very hard 
on that to do that. Um, but to get some of the characteristics that we like in flexible packages, it means that they're very heterogeneous when you collect them. That makes it hard for a recycler to predict what are the properties of this stuff when it comes out the end. And you need to know what the properties are if you're going to make a product. You can't have, and this is this gentleman's point, that if I have something in here that might you know, start to degrade, you know, I'm going to have a problem with my, my customer. Um, TerraCycle, um, I don't know if you've seen their recent, um, I think there are only so many recycled backpacks and handbags and other things we can have in the world, right? Um, and I think that, you know, there is really outstanding intent behind there, but I think the practicality of how the types of volumes that we need to push through to really effectively recycle plastics is not going to happen through that kind of program. And in fact, I think they've said that they use a huge amount of post-industrial scrap. They're not using um, post-consumer. So, you know, there's a challenge on that, on that front. Um, and certainly reuse is something um, that we used to do a lot of reuse, but we found out that washing, when you have to heat water, takes a lot of energy. And um, so we've, we moved out of a lot of reusable glass containers. They actually have a really interesting reuse model in Canada. They have a common footprint beer bottle. The beer industry collects all their bottles, they wash them and they reuse them and they just put their own label on to identify them. That makes a lot of sense in Canada where you have a lot of water and a lot of hydroelectric. But in Arizona, that model is probably not going to work very well. Um, so. We did used to do that, but I think from an energy perspective, you would find, especially in the U.S., coal-burning power plants, that the energy it takes to heat the water to wash the bottle, it's, it's not, from an environmental perspective, that may not be the best strategy. I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm saying I think that's a likely scenario. Um, and, and you've seen companies that have moved out of that. There are new clean cleaning systems that are, um, I think there's some type of nitrogen flush system that actually don't use water. And I think you, I've seen in Europe some reuse systems that are, that are moving in that direction, but I don't know that much about that technology. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the relationship between biodegradability uh, and litter. Well, I don't know that much about that because we actually don't know very much about litter because um, our data is really poor. Um, so obviously those things that are persistent in the environment are the things that are our bigger litter issues. And marine debris is a, you know, I heard you had a recent speaker on that. I mean, it is a, it is a hot topic and the, the plastics industry is certainly paying attention to it. Um, I think that you know, when you look at the trajectory, plastics are positioned as a very resource efficient material. And we know that we're using more and more of it. There's more and more of it in our waste streams. And um, I think as you look forward in time and you look at where we're going to be selling products in the future, it's in our emerging markets, which tend to have very underdeveloped waste management systems. 
And um, in those environments, if you're not managing waste, if it's not managed, that's probably the worst outcome for materials that are persistent in the environment. And we see that. I mean, when you go to parts of the world where we don't have good waste management, um, you see incredible litter problems. So I think that's, that's going to be a tough nut to crack. Oh, I got a green Yale hat. <laughs> and also. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, that's great. The Industrial Environmental Management Lecture Series has been brought to you by the Center for Industrial Ecology with major funding from Nestle Waters and the continued support from the Joel Omura Kurahara Fund. This was Anna Johnson, director of the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, speaking about finding facts in fiction on biodegradability and packaging. This was recorded on Thursday, February 10, 2011. For more information, visit cie.research.yale.edu.